grab your Bible and turn to the book of Numbers. And um, it's kind of an obscure passage in some ways, um, but I've been spending a fair amount of time uh, reflecting on this over the last three months as we've been in this pandemic and uh, just thinking about the kinds of themes that are related to intercession and particularly repentance, which I believe Numbers 25 um, illustrates to us. And my plan is just to kind of walk through the text and then uh, make some application at the end as I think this story, this narrative um, has a really dramatic uh, way of a significant heart truth. And in many ways it builds, although it's in a different vein, it builds on what Chris was just sharing about. And that is uh, how much does uh, our heart passion play in the outworking of the purposes of God. And it's way more than I was ever taught when I was growing up, that's for sure. So if you just join your hearts with me as we pray, Father, give us uh, wisdom and understanding. Open your word to us, we pray, and open our hearts to receive your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Numbers 25 uh, begins, while Israel was staying um, in Shittim. Um, the Hebrew word Shittim means a grove of acacia trees. This is in the eastern Jordan Valley. So they have navigated out of the wilderness. They're beginning to make their way up to the promised land. They're still on the eastern side of the Jordan, but they're on the doorstep, if you will, of uh, the land of promise. and um, you know, we're at the, toward the end of the book of Numbers, we're toward the end of their journey. And um, just want to, just to set our understanding, like this is an extraordinarily pivotal moment in the outworking of the progress of redemption. You know, God's redeeming purpose being established in the earth realm. Um, so verse one of chapter 25, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping, or literally Israel was yoked to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now you guys know the scriptures, you know that, um, this is the, at the end of 40 years. Um, you know, the generation that came out of Egypt was not prepared uh, in faith and trust to believe God to enter into the land of promise. Um, and so God uh, released judgment against them and said that, um, you know, he was going to need to raise up another generation who would, you know, take them across and, and into the promised land. And this is the land that God had carved out for himself. It's a strategic piece of real estate. It's at the corner of three continents. Europe, Asia, and Africa intersect here. And God wants to display uh, his glory, his purposes through his people Israel uh, so that salvation might be released to the nations of the earth. Ultimately, of course, we know that's going to come through Messiah. But before Messiah comes, it's the Lord's 
desire uh, to establish a culture of faith and truth uh, in his own people and to put on display his goodness, his ways, um, his Torah, his instruction uh, over against the perversion of the peoples of the ancient world who were yoked to idols. Uh, more pointedly, they were yoked to uh, the cosmic level evil deities that animated the idols. And so God is establishing his purposes in the earth realm. Uh, it, you, if you remember the context just prior to Numbers 25, Balaam tried to curse the people of God. He couldn't do that. And here's an, another way in which the enemy is seeking to keep God's people from entering in fully to their purpose. And so as they're camped out here, um, you know, in the land of Midian and uh, the Moabite people are there as well. They're, they're near a very ancient sacred shrine uh, to one of the bales of the land. Uh, this is the Baal of Peor. That is the Baal of that particular region. And we know that Baal was the primary deity who was worshiped by the Canaanite uh, peoples. Uh, Baal's a fertility god. Uh, you know, the whole deal about Baal was he brought rain and he brought increase. And in the Mediterranean part of the world, everything depends upon rain, that the rain would come in its season, that the crops would grow, that families would grow, that there would be fertility among the women. This is what the cult of Baal is all about. And most of you understand that Baal was worshipped not only by animal sacrifice, Baal was also regularly worshipped by cultic prostitution. There were cultic priestesses that serviced uh, the temples of Baal, the shrines of Baal, and in extreme times, uh, Baal was also worshipped by human sacrifice, uh, modeled after the cult of Molech, that infants would be sacrificed to Baal. Of course, this is what God is seeking to displace. This is what's rooted in Canaan. God is going to bring his people in there. But now as his people are on the threshold of the promised land, the very capacity that they would have to uproot the people of Canaan is being threatened because of compromise. If they're yoked to Baal, they're not going to be able to uproot Baal. If they're yoked to Baal, their authority to take the land that's been dedicated to Baal, and in many senses given to Baal, they no longer have authority to take and claim that land for Yahweh. And so this is uh, I'm not surprised that this is recorded in the scriptures, even though it seems like rather bizarre to our modern senses. This is an attempt to thwart the purposes of God for his people coming into the land while they're on the very threshold. And it says the Lord's anger uh, burned against his people. Now, we all know that the principle Jesus taught this to whom much is given, much is required. These people had been eating miracles every day for 40 years. Miraculous provision of manna. Every day they were eating miracles. Every day they were seeing with their own eyes the presence of the Almighty, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. These were not private revelations. They saw with their own eyes the presence of the Lord. So the responsibility upon them was high. God, throughout these uh, 40 years of journey, was seeking to build not only a culture of truth, but a culture of trust. And now, on the threshold, they're in danger of throwing it all away because the women of Moab, the Midianite women, had come to entice the men 
these Israelite men to go to the shrine of the Baal of Peor, to enter into uh, cultic prostitution, to engage in eating the meat of the sacrifices, to compromise their standing, to be able to take the land that God had so faithfully brought them to. So it says in verse four, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. This is God's word of judgment uh, against uh, the leaders of the people. Evidently, this is a, a, a wholesale, um, this is not just one or two individuals traping off on the side to go over and check out this cult over at the shrine of Bela Peor. There's a wholesale migration into this cultic prostitution and partaking in you know, these extraordinarily evil pagan practices at the shrine of the Baal. And so therefore God is holding the leaders accountable and so that his anger uh, is not released against the whole nation, he says to Moses, you need to hold the leaders accountable and the judgment is an extraordinarily, um, well, it, it's a very extreme judgment to kill all of the leaders and then to expose them, either to hang them from trees or to expose them on the ground in the, uh, under the midday sun. And in, in essence, what God is doing uh, in, in, in releasing this judgment is he's declaring to the heavenlies, you cannot thwart my purposes. I'm releasing judgment against my people who have sinned against me. You will see that I'm releasing judgment against them. You cannot stop and thwart what I've intended to do. So that's, that's what's behind the word of judgment in verse 4. In verse 5, it's a very interesting thing. Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Now, if you're reading with any care, you understand that Moses thinks that he is more just and more merciful than the Almighty. He substitutes his own judgment for the word of judgment that God had released. God says that the leaders were to be judged, put to death, executed, and exposed. Moses says, to the very leaders who are under the judgment of God, you guys uh, determine and find out who the men were that went over to the cultic site, and you put them to death. We all understand when we try to be more just and more merciful than God, it's not a happy ending. And we see this in the story because later, down, later on in the chapter, we find that God released the plague within the nation because Moses refused to carry out the just sentence that God had decreed. And Moses thought he was being more merciful, but actually 24,000 people ended up dying because a plague was released in the nation. Now, if a plague is going to make its way through the nation, through the assembled peoples, so that 24,000 people died, obviously, we're, what we're, we, it only takes us a few minutes to read the chapter, but this is unfolding over a matter of a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, as the plague proceeds you know, through the people. And um, let's just pick up again in verse 6. So Moses substituted his own judgment. We find out down in, in verse 9 that a plague had come. So this is going on. The plague is ravaging the peoples. In verse 6, we read, Then an Israelite man 
brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, this is an extraordinary scene. You know, much of the nation is gathered at the, the doorway of the tabernacle, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses is there. The people are there. They're weeping. They're mourning. They're lamenting. One would presume that they're also repenting because they've come to see that the error of their ways, their sin has released judgment into the camp. Their family members and friends are dying. So they're repenting before God. But while that's going on, this one guy, he's run off to the shrine of the Baal of Peor. He's found a Midianite woman there that he likes, and he brings her back into the camp of Israel. And while Moses and the people are looking on, he takes her into his tent in order to enter into sexual acts with her. It's pretty uh, brazen and bold on this guy's part. This is how, just gives us an idea of how much this thing is falling apart. And, um, you know, the corruption is spreading, uh, both the moral corruption and then the release of the plague, it's spreading, you know, throughout the nation. It says in verse 7, when Phineas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, so Phineas is, he's the grandson of Aaron, he's in the priestly line. When Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. And he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. You know, this is one of the passages you don't want to read in Sunday school, you know, when you're teaching the junior boys. This is definitely an R-rated scripture. And what you imagine being told is exactly what's being told in the Hebrew. With one thrust, sexual entendre, of the spear, Phineas uh, drives the spear through the man, and the Hebrew word that's translated into the woman's body, you know, here in the NIV, uh, the spear is thrust through the man and through the woman's private parts. And then we're told that in this action, the plague was stopped. Now, you know, that's a rather bizarre thing. It gets more bizarre as we read on down, but I believe the Lord is revealing something to us here that's really important to the whole heart of 10 days and also to the heart of where we're at in this global plague of coronavirus. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. That's an extraordinary expression. With this action, Phineas made atonement for the nation. Now, I dare say you won't find in the book of Leviticus uh, a description of how to accomplish atonement by what Phineas did with this spear through this man and woman who were copulating in the tent. 
But God says in his zeal and in his action, he made atonement. And God explains it's because he was as zealous for the honor of God as God himself is zealous for his own honor. Now, that's an extraordinary statement about God. We know him to be the most humble person in all of creation. We know that his humility as is exhibited in Jesus also is the heart of the Father. But though God the Father is extraordinarily humble, he is zealous for his own honor and for his own namesake. And um, I believe that the act that Phineas took brought about atonement because I believe it is for us a picture of repentance. Now, let me explain this. And I, I want to rely on a pastor theologian of an earlier era, a man by the name of J. McLeod Campbell. I'm just going to quote uh, from his writings here. He writes, God can only exercise forgiveness after the greatness of the offense is acknowledged. In this sense, God is like us. We can't forgive in the sense of resuming a normal relationship until those who have injured us acknowledge their sin. Repentance brings about reconciliation because now the relationship can be restored. This is what Phineas does on behalf of Israel. What Phineas does is that he feels in his own heart, he acknowledges and he expresses the horror of what the people of Israel have done. He owns it, and he owns it before God. And when God sees this, he receives the repentance on behalf of the entire nation, and the judgment is stopped, the plague ceases, the people and the mission are saved. I think this is an extraordinary passage. Therese was praying earlier in the 11 to 12 o'clock hour, prayers that many of us have prayed many times. Lord, give us your heart for this situation. Let our heart break for the things that break your heart. And while the whole nation and Moses himself are there before the tent of meeting, they're repenting before God, but atonement is not achieved. Atonement is not affected. The plague is continuing to ravage the nation. But when one man embraces in his own heart, with his emotion, with his passion, with his action, then expressing repentance on behalf of the nation, owning the horror of the crime that has been done by God's people, God sees that and says, this is an act of atonement. Judgment has been accomplished. My justice is satisfied. To me, it's a powerful expression of how central repentance is, uh, married with our intercession so that the highest and best purposes of God can be accomplished and released. I want to go back to the writings of Campbell to kind of bring this to a close. He says, the events in Numbers 25 beautifully illustrate one of the important aspects of what is happening on the cross. By his birth and incarnation, Jesus identified himself with sinful humanity. At the beginning of his ministry, he undergoes a baptism for the remission of sins, not because he himself had any, but because he wanted us to understand his total identification with our sinful race. 
this identification then comes to a climax with his arrest, his scourging and crucifixion. Listen to this next statement. This is so powerful. In embracing the cross, Jesus is making a statement to the Father as a representative human being that this is what sin deserves. Like Phineas, it is a repentant act. As a human being, Jesus is in agreement with the Father that sin deserves this horrible death. But unlike Phineas, instead of using the spear in his zeal for God, he receives it into his own body and dies himself. This is representative repentance on behalf of humanity. Jesus, as one of us, is acknowledging before God the enormity of human sin. He is in agreement with the Father that this is what sin deserves. His personal innocence race. Jesus, as the great high priest, offered identificational repentance, allowing God to move in grace toward humanity, whereas before he could only move in judgment. This then gives us space for personal repentance. In a similar way, if we are called to be a kingdom of priests, we have to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and make represent, representative repentance on behalf of those who can no longer do so because they're dead or who are not yet willing to do so. Our standing in their stead again enables God to move towards that nation or people group in grace and mercy, whereas otherwise he would only be able to exercise judgment. This then in turn gives them space to come to personal repentance over these things. When the fullness of repentance was expressed by one man, Phineas. The fullness of God's judgment was accomplished and then the fullness of God's mercy could be released. That's where we're at right now. We've been repenting as a nation before the Lord. I know the people who are listening to me um, this afternoon, you get this, you understand this. We're not only crying out to God for mercy, which we are doing that, but we also understand that you know, this uh, shaking, you know, this end time uh, release of this pandemic, which obviously is in the form of a judgment, um, we understand we deserve this and more. It's only God's mercy that has prevented more of this from coming. And so I'm just, I've been encouraging myself with this passage from Numbers 25. I've taught this to my congregation, you know, over the course of this week, these weeks. You know, that in our prayers in the middle of this uh, COVID crisis, we don't just simply pray for it to cease, but we identify with the reality that we need to bring repentance before the Lord and therefore asking him to release the, release the mercy that Jesus has won on our behalf and set things right between us as a people and himself. So that's what I got to say this, this afternoon. That's what I wanted to share. And um, I thank you for listening. Let me just lead us in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the example of Phineas. And Lord, I just confess before you um, that my heart is not sufficient 
to feel or contain or respond to you in the ways that I know the situation around us calls for. But Lord, I ask you to increase the capacity of my heart. And Lord, we do bring before you the sins of this nation. Lord, there has been a cry for uh, the sanctity of all lives in the midst of this pandemic. But Lord, we also know this very nation has slaughtered 60 million innocents over the last 47 years. And we ask you, Lord, to have mercy upon us. Lord, there are many other sins that stain us before you. We've prayed about some of them in the earlier hour, racial injustice and violence. And Lord, just the casting off of our godly heritage and acting, Lord, as if we don't need you. And Lord, in the midst of all of the talking and blah, blah, blah that we've heard during this COVID-19 pandemic, Lord, we've heard from public figures almost no words of calling the people to God. There have been some, but Lord, there's been very little repentance. So we want to make our voice known before you on behalf of the people of New England, on behalf of the people of this nation, on behalf of the people of the world. Lord, would you have mercy upon us? We know that we deserve this and more, but we're asking you to look to the atonement of your son. And we pray, Lord, for your great namesake and for your redemptive purposes, this thing called the kingdom that you are ushering in. Lord, would you have mercy upon us and bring forth your highest and best purposes out of this shaking. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.